0: Welcome to Jews on Film. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker and video editor and a Jew. With me, as always, is one of my three co-hosts, Harry Ottensasser. Harry, how you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well. As you mentioned, I'm Harry Ottensasser. I have a a film degree, uh, a degree in film studies. I am a current Jew, and I'm really excited to be joined this week to discuss the film enemies a love story with uh with our guest this week so we've got a special guest he is an american film critic author podcaster and blogger his new book in on the joke the original queens of stand-up comedy is out now sean levy welcome to jews on film uh thanks so much fellas thanks for joining us Um,
0: pleasure to have you here
1: so uh, we were really excited to discuss this film this week. Like like many of the films I think we've discussed on this podcast, this was one I was not so familiar with. In this case, I hadn't even heard of it, to be honest. And uh, I was really excited that you thought to discuss it because there's there's so much Jewishness in there that I'm really excited to discuss. So just wanted to start you off with the question we ask all of our guests, which is, what made you choose this film? Really? The two or three other
2: films I thought of, you guys had already done. So <laughs> bravo bravo to that. Um but it is, a, it is a forgotten movie. I was noticing that it's got barely 100 reviews on IMDb and 20 or 30 on Rotten Tomatoes. And yet, when it was released, it was nominated for two Best Supporting Actress Oscars and a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar. So it wasn't obscure. Right. It was released by a, a, an arm of Disney in 1989. Um, and Paul Mazursky, the director who passed away a couple of years ago, just before COVID, I believe... You know, he had directed things like Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Moscow mm-hmm. Hudson, An Unmarried Woman, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. So this was not some you know obscure indie filmmaker. This was a you know a, a proper industry pro. So it's curious that this film has sort of sunken away from memory.
0: I'm so glad that you picked it because, like you said, I had not heard of this film before. I would not have thought of to pick this film. It's not one that comes up in the sort of the lexicon of Jewish films that we often talk about the Schindler's List, the Fiddlers on the Roofs, the Yentels, that kind of thing. But it is a pretty, you know, it's based on a book, by Isaac Bashevis Singer of the same name. And previously he had written a short story, Yentl. So that's why I bring it up. But yeah, it's it's a really, really, really Jewish film. I don't want to spoil our uh, our ratings so soon in the episode, but uh, we're glad that you pe- picked it. I wanted to speak, kind of zoom out a little bit, if we can, and just talk, you know, what does Jewish film kind of mean to you? You know, there's,
2: there's, I think, two ways of thinking about it in Hollywood. Film, you know, it's it, I, I can't have this conversation necessarily about film from other countries, but you know, the American film industry was, for the most part, founded by Jewish entrepreneurs: Louis Mayer, the Warners, Daryl Zanuck, Carl Lemley. You know, these the, these people were Jewish, but they never made films about Jewish subjects. They felt like outsiders. They. Wanted to, you know, point the other way. Don't look at me. Look at what I do. They created, there's a wonderful book by Neil Gobler, An Empire of Their Own, which posits that our idea of the American dream, the white picket fence, uh, sort of Americana is an invention, a projection of these immigrant Jews. That's what they wished to be or wish to be seen as. So you have a period of a long time where Jewish subjects in film were sort of like subtext. You know, there would be an outsider and you'd only realize later on, oh, he's he's the Jewish guy, uh, much in the right. way that Superman, you know, <laughs> found in the bulrushes named Kal-El is, is Jewish. <laughs> but you, you don't know that unless you, you know, look at it in retrospect. And then yeah. starting you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, you had the emergence of specifically Jewish theme in films in the work of Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, um, You know, comedians could do this. There's one or two films prior to that, I think, are noteworthy. The Pawnbroker by Sidney Lumet. Yep. So after after that sea change, when all those studio bosses were dead and Jews were saying, I am Jewish, this is a Jewish subject, I think then it becomes a very explicit thing. And right. if they, you know, Steven Spielberg, many, many films about the white picket fence America. But the film of his that you know we most esteem, Schindler's List, the only one for which he won a directing Oscar, which seems impossible, did he win for Saving Private Ryan? I can't recall now.
0: That's a good question. I mean, he's got Fablemans coming out. I mean, Fablemans is, is out, so we'll see. Out, we'll see. You, you know, know here,
2: this guy is making movies for almost 60 years, and this is right. his second explicitly Jewish movie. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. That that, it's a complex answer to the question. But I think that if I look for it in in classic Hollywood movies, I see it as subtext. Occasionally you'll see someone say that's a Jewish character, Mm -hmm. but he's not identified as Jewish. Right. And then in more contemporary films, you know, going in, these are Jewish people. This is a Jewish household that that I'm looking at, etc.
0: Right. Usually on this podcast, we had a past guest refer to it as being coded Jewish. And so, you know, they would have like curly hair and their last name was like Goldfarb. But other than that, that was it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And they'd kind of like act a different way than our like, you know, we think about like broadcast news with Albert Brooks. And like, he's sort of like our coded Jewish character. Thank you, Gail. (laughs) Because I do think that that helps me kind of like see, see these movies in a different way. I mean... I don't need to wear my coated Jewish glasses so much for this film because it's kind of all over the place.
2: Yeah, it's Isaac um, Singer and, you know, right. you know, going in what you're
1: getting.
0: Totally. <laughs> Carrie. do you want to tell everyone what this movie is about?
1: Yeah, I definitely can. I can key up the discussion with the uh, IMDb summary that I know yeah. you're asking for. There's a very funny one that I'm going to cheat again this week, like I've done in the past and do two because one I think is, you know, so ridiculous for a movie so Jewish for, you know, that to kind of be absent. But the main one on the page, when you open it up, kind of at the top, just reads, it's one sentence. It says, a ghostwriter finds himself romantically involved with his current wife, a married woman, and his long vanished wife. Okay. Just devoid of of all the context of all... You know, everything, but there's a there's much no, better There's one no now. J
0: word in there, right?
1: That's well, so definitely doesn't refer to anything Jewish, but it also just makes it sound like a, uh, just a, sort of like one of those, like, you know, ditzy romantic comedy kind right, of like, exactly. parts, like, you know, oh. balancing these different wives. <clears throat> How can you do it without Uh-oh. all of just the emotional weight? Exactly. If that's the movie that you were, if you were choosing this movie, just based on that description, you know, I mean, I hope you still enjoy it. I think it was an amazing film, but you're just not going to get what you're looking at. So I'll, I'll cheat and just read a second one. Please do. Because, you know, part of the reason we read this is to just set the stage. And I don't think that quite did it. So here's here's a better summary that might do that for, uh, for our listeners. So set in 1949, New York, a Holocaust survivor who makes a living as a ghostwriter for a Jewish rabbi finds himself involved with three women, his current wife, a passionate affair with a married woman, and his long vanished wife, whom he thought was killed during the war and suddenly reappears. The film concentrates on the views of the Jewish survivors who no longer abide by religious morales and question a God who could let the Holocaust occur.
0: I like that one. Or at my alley. And and given the given the the movie, I feel like cheating is totally fine. You know, it's not a big deal. That's, that's definitely a big part. Yeah. I,
1: I also wanted to, you know, before we move forward, just talk about what you were you were saying, Sean, just about the eras of you know Hollywood film and the way that it kind of feels like you were saying that they felt, you know, a lot of Jewish filmmakers could start being a little bit more explicit about it towards some of the later decades of the 20th century. And yeah. it's so interesting. This is a movie that comes out in the 80s, but obviously is keying into a time right like we just said 1949 the late 40s the post-war you know people all people who of you know sort of working class age experienced likely survived the holocaust if they were coming to america from you know one of these uh european countries and it's just it's almost like telling the story you know it's using a period piece to tell a story that might not have otherwise been told and share that perspective you know 60 years ago when old hollywood was just coming up and when those movies in theory would have been made and it, it really feels like it's You know, challenging these questions of assimilation, which we'll definitely talk about of, you know, how much of your past touches on who you are now? How much are you supposed to leave that behind? How can you honor that? And I just think that fits in so well to a lot of the context you were spelling out for this film.
0: You know, it's interesting, too, that Isaac Bashevis Singer, I believe, came to the United States sort of before the Holocaust. So this experience that he's sort of depicting in the book and then also in the movie is not one that he actually led. So he kind of had to step outside of his known experience and and write for other people, most likely who would be reading his stuff. But uh, kind of an interesting, fun fact. I think we're kind of teed up and we're ready to go. So let's uh, take a quick break. We'll be right back and we'll start discussing the plot. And welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Sean Levy to discuss the film Enemies, a Love Story. Now, over the break, Sean, you mentioned you had a few stories you wanted to share with us as we kind of jump into the story and the plot here.
2: You know, we talk about this as a forgotten film. In 1989, I was working at Box Office Magazine, and this was our cover story the month it came out. And I did a lengthy interview with Paul Mazursky. At the time, I thought I was looking at, you know, an Oscar bait movie, as we refer to it now, you know, with based on a novel by a Nobel laureate, by a popular Hollywood filmmaker, Ron Silver hadn't really become a leading man in movies, but he was a well-known, you know, Broadway and character actor. Mm-hmm. And Angelica Houston was not long prior to this an Oscar winning actress. So Elena Olin was, a, a, you know, sort of a hot new actress in Hollywood. So there were a lot of elements that suggested to me that this film would really take off. And it got three Oscar nominations, but it didn't do a lot of business. And I happened to be in Book Soup on Sunset Boulevard one evening, and there was Paul Mazursky. Uh, The Oscar nominations had been announced. And I went over to him and I said, you know, I introduced myself and he remembered that we'd spoken. And I said, "I I was disappointed that you didn't get more nominations. And he said, oh, these things are are political, but. On the day the nominations were announced or perhaps the day after, I had been at lunch with an old time Hollywood publicist named Dale Olson. And this is a guy that Martin Short could play with an open neck shirt, <laughs> big, bear, big owl glasses. And we were talking about the Oscar nominations. And I said, I'm surprised that Enemies, a Love Story didn't get more nominations. And he looked at me through these big window frame glasses and said, Jews fucking in the Bronx. <laughs> and i was like oh and ever since then i understood the oscars right um, but also i understood like why you know this movie made hollywood a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. um if you were 40 in 1989 these characters would have been your parents generation
0: right mm-hmm. and
2: to see them you know struggling with the, the 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 you know the the war still ringing in their ears and, and expressing that that horror in appetites for food and sex and money and and you know all the things that these characters are involved in must have been slightly you know queasy making so right. it, in some regards it's not surprising that the film you know came and went even though the reviews were good
0: right
1: Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I want to say if if they're going to do a re-release of this film, I think the tagline should be, you know, Jews fucking in the Bronx, because I think that's
0: (laughs) honestly encapsulates a lot of what what happens in the film. So I really think that works. Also in Coney Island, let's be fair, there's a little bit of that. Not as much, but a little bit. Uh, The other
1: thing I wanted to mention just is that. I you know re- learned reading some of the trivia about this film on IMDb. They talked about how originally if this was supposed to be you know a Disney Studio film, and they kind of put the project and turn around. And you know what it says here is that they basically shopped it, and every major, every other major Hollywood studio turned it down. Like it clearly was something that was, you know, people didn't want to touch. People were a little bit nervous about. So the fact that it even you know gets the release and is still you know can still be found easily on on Amazon today, like we did, is just you know it, it's surprising.
0: Let's jump into the film. Sean. you mentioned a few of the cast members, but let me just spell that out for everyone. So to follow along at home, so we have our main character is Herman, played by Ron Silver. And then his three wives are as follows. So first, we meet Yadwiga, who is played by Margaret Sophie Stein. Uh, We have Lena Olin, who plays Masha. And then uh, Tamara is played by Angelica Houston. And that's sort of the order that we meet them. Those are our main three. There's some other ones that we'll call out kind of as we get to it. But Harry, do you want to get us kicked off? Absolutely.
1: So uh, the film opens in the Coney Island bedroom of Herman Broder, and we see he basically has this nightmare about hiding in a barn while Nazi soldiers are searching for him. We later find out that he is now married to someone who was his Gentile servant at the time of the war, someone we saw in that flashback named Jadwiga, whose family had saved him in their barn during the Holocaust. So Herman tells Jadwiga that he's a traveling book salesman and he has to go on a trip, but in reality, he goes... First to the home of Rabbi Lembeck, who is the person that we mentioned in the summary that he ghostwrites speeches for. And after that, he visits Masha, who is a married woman that he's having an affair with. And she's also living with her mother. So he goes to their apartment. So um Herman and Masha sleep together. And then she suggests that they both divorce their spouses because Masha, we learn, is also currently married the same way Herman is. And that they divorce their spouses and get married together to each other. Later, Herman goes back and takes Yadwiga on a vacation to Coney Island, where she has... you know, a a lot of fun and ultimately tells Herman that she wants to have a baby with him and start a family. She also says that despite being a quote, you know, despite being a Gentile, she wants to learn to read so that she can convert to Judaism and start practicing a Jewish life. So just wanted to key us in with a little bit of those first couple of moments just to set the scene like you've been alluding to, Daniel. We have, you know, Herman, he's got his wife, he's got his affair, has a lot of the trauma he carries with him from the Holocaust.
0: And that kind of places us in the world. One thing I noticed is like, everyone kind of has to relate to the other in some way. So everyone kind of calls Yadwiga, who's honestly like such a sweetheart in the film. Everyone calls her a peasant and like kind of talks down to her. That's just something to keep an eye out for. But It's very interesting, this setup, because he's paying rent on two apartments. You know, he basically has his home in Coney Island, and then he's paying rent for his mistress, who's estranged from her husband, Leon, up in the Bronx. Masha's mother is not really on board with their relationship and so she's kind of like pushing them towards marriage. It's a very interesting way to kind of set the scene um, and he's definitely in a bit of a pickle. I think some of that humor comes out more as we meet our third wife and the sort of balancing act of trying to manage three different relationships but he you know he does get something different from each wife which we'll touch on once we introduce our third wife but uh, you know and it's also very similar to the book I believe it kind of is similar. Plot wise, I was grabbed by this
2: film right away for a number of reasons. For one, my maternal, my paternal grandmother was a Broder. Oh, and And I don't know of another movie with a Broder as a protagonist. So I was like, oh, my God, talk about hitting close to home. Right. The rendering of these lives, there's no I I have a particular uh, animus toward films about the past where everyone is dressed in the same color. Mm-hmm. Like where where it looks like the the wardrobe people just you know give me all your brown coats right. and dress dress the actors and Mazursky, who grew up in Brooklyn in in the thirties and forties takes such care to render the world fully that Coney Island sequence mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, Coney Island in the '80s was, you know, a birthplace of hip hop. It was not a Jewish, you know, fairyland the way it is in in this movie, but it was shot there, right? Um, and and the, the the work that went into the textural work that is going on from the very beginning, the Formica tables, yeah, and, you know, the, the the food, you know, everything is rendered so carefully that you're like, oh, this is this is just someone. Rebuilding an old world that's lost, that Deadly. he remembers from his youth. Mm-hmm. And of all the movies that Mizerski made, I, I remember thinking, "Oh, this is like learning that the the, the fiddle player down the hall who's constantly playing like pone music can also play, you know, Brahms." Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he, he he was known as a satirist and and a comedian of contemporary moors, and here he is rendering something in the past. And from the very beginning, you get that that
1: richness of of A sharp eye remembering how things were. I I completely agree. I think the attention to detail with this film, you know, comparing it to Yentl, which we discussed, you know, same short story was adapted by the same author. But we had some gripes there with, especially when it came to the accents and the Hebrew and the use of text there, the use of Torah was kind of just to plug and play some maybe of the best hits, maybe throw in some well-known lines maybe from Pirkei Avot we mentioned in, in that film, which I don't think is the case here. I think the attention to detail is so particular. Spot you on, know, yeah. We'll talk about sequences later. There's a Kol Nidre sequence where they're just, they're saying the right prayers. Like, it, it's so specific. The other thing I'll, I'll mention what you were saying about this sort of love letter to, you know, the, this Jewish experience on Coney Island, you know, I'll, I'll point out the film begins and actually ends with some klezmer music. That That's most mm-hmm. of the scoring for the film. And especially in that opening scene, it was pretty remarkable to me because, at first, I thought it was. I, I wasn't sure if it was part of the scene. Was it coming outside the window? That klezmer music was it diegetic, as you know, in, in film speak. But it turns <laughs> out they were just playing it before very quickly shifting to the to that nightmare sequence he has. Like it, it didn't have any basis in that first scene of the film, other than to just set a tone, just to be evocative of you know old country klezmer music and that kind of migration to to New York. So it, it, there's a clear. He he clearly loves it. He's clearly trying to work in that experience. So I I definitely second everything you were saying.
0: Yeah, definitely. So as we kind of bounce along in the plot, um, Herman spends the night with Masha. uh, And in the morning, her mother hands him a newspaper that has his name and like a phone number that says that, you know, a certain rabbi is looking for him. So he goes to the Lower East Side and he finds the address of the ad. And he, he discovers that his wife... Again, Tamara, played by Angelica Houston, who he thought was dead, is actually there. Uh, She explains that even though she was shot, she ultimately was able to play dead underneath a pile of bodies, and she survived. Uh, Herman shares that he sort of remarried, and uh, because he thought she was dead... And he even, on top of that, has a mistress. Although Tamara kind of like calls it, you know, she she asks him point blank. And he's like, yeah, I have a mistress, you know. So they, they have a little tiff about that. But she kind of comes to the, accept the fact that they won't be together. And she takes on this sort of like fairy godmother conscience guardian angel role, which we'll see a little bit more of as we kind of progress into the film. Um, but I thought that was a good place to kind of like pause and discuss. As someone who used to live on the Lower East Side, on Grand Street, kind of like right in the heart of it, I recognized um, the Cole Nidra which is now like an upscale uh, apartment that they've converted, uh, and the the Judaica store on Essex Street with those steel stairs where she, go, you know, where Tamara and ultimately ends up working. I remember that store very vividly. I think I've been in there once or twice. Um, but yeah, like you were saying, Sean, the way that they have textured the Lower East Side. At least, you know, that first introduction where it says Lower East Side and it almost looks like one of these like old timey postcards. Like it could have been a still frame from that because the way that everyone was dressed and you see the fishmonger and you see the fruit and vegetable people and you see the kids running around and just wearing these like very well-loved clothing and all of it was just rendered so beautifully. But uh, what what did you all think about Tamara's introduction into the film? I think, you know, now we've met all three of them.
2: I think it's it's one of these moments, you know, it really is sort of a, a twist in the plot, but also it, it carries an emotional resonance. She comes out of a corridor mm-hmm. as if she's returning from another world. Oh, OK. Very, you know, kind of spooky. And he has... He has no idea what's going on and what he's about to see. Right. And the the, the little uh rabbi and his wife think that they're doing such a, a wonderful thing for this guy. Right. No idea that they're com- complicating his white life exponentially. Um, not to mention the emotions that he's gonna experience. And I think that we we, you know, we've been told at that point two or three times that she's dead. She didn't survive the war. Right. So we have no reason as an audience to believe that we're about to meet this person. So I think we experience some of that. And, you know, Angelica Houston has such, a um, you know, that, that Modigliani sort of face, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. long and, you know, sort of uh, ropey movement of her body. And when she comes back, through the in the carter and she's beautifully made up because she's seeing her husband it's a big occasion that she's prepared for it's just it's gorgeous it's just gorgeous filmmaking it's like the reveal of garbo or someone like that in right. another movie but it's also just you know in terms of the plot it's like okay this is
0: a complicated story that now just became byzantine right <laughs> yeah and it's also like it's interesting too because you know something that you were talking about her appearance and things like that. She does have a uh, she has sustained like an injury from the Holocaust. So throughout the film, through most of the film, she is kind of like hobbling across and limping as kind of like that permanent reminder of of the history. And um, although she is this like, you know, picturesque beauty, she does have this sustained injury. And, and that sort of like marks her um, as as we kind of go through.
1: Yeah, this sudden appearance, it works. It, it's such a, an amazing kind of twist in the plot, like you were saying, that we didn't expect. I mean, on, on one end, it's not only are we being told that she's dead, but, you know, and hopefully we can work one of those quotes in here from Rabbi Lembeck, but there's this repeated notion of like, you know, you're not in the Holocaust anymore. You have to move on. There's this, mm-hmm. and Rabbi Lembeck, in, in the context of, he's like talking about this Taylor, I think, who he doesn't want to send a cell phone to because he doesn't want people to know where he lives.
2: I can help you a great deal, but you close up like a clam. Well, maybe. Maybe I am no longer part of this world. Cliches, empty words. I know hundreds of concentration camp survivors, some of them practically on their way to the oven, but they're doing fine. They drive cars, they do business, and they have telephones. Maybe that's my problem. I was hiding in a barn.
1: It's clearly coming from this place of people that are, you know, stuck in 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 the past, kind of trying to move at it. Not only have we seen the nightmare that uh, that our that Herman experiences, but even on on the bus when he's traveling to the rabbi, he kind of has this flash of this Nazi guard. So there's this past that's weighing on him that he's escaping. And then to suddenly be faced with it, it's such an interesting mismatch of emotional experiences, because like you said, you know, when she's coming very expectant, all made up, excited for this reunion, his his reaction isn't, oh my gosh, it's so nice to see you. He almost immediately tells her, I'm married now. I thought you were dead. And and there's this weird kind of anxious energy. And then what I think also was so powerful about that moment, moment. You know, not only does that create the film's conflict and leads to somehow him having three wives by the end of it, but the other thing is that it really is rooted in this concept of marriage to someone I think that this is a concept that I'm sure has been found elsewhere but definitely rooted in, Jude- in Judaism of you know scenarios exactly like this like I think coming out of the holocaust especially where it was so hard to track people down and people would spend decades afterwards you know we've covered another film from this time period the survivor that had a very similar plot where people didn't know who existed there had to be kind of uh, you know, halakha, like Jewish halacha, right? These these big questions of, are you allowed to remarry? How can you do it? I, I know there was, you know, and this has been throughout Jewish history in times of like the, um, you know, sort of the the Jewish pogroms that happened in Europe. There were famous rabbis who would come out and, and come with these, you know, large scale, you know, tshuvas, basically these, these large decrees, basically saying, if you didn't know, you know, your spouse was killed and it wasn't sure, you know, they, they had to give special permission for people to re, to remarry because this was such a complicated situation. And this goes back to the, you know, to tell Munich discussions about these issues, because this was something that, you know, has always been relevant for a people that is escaping tragedy, that is in all these, Circumstances of uncertainty. And I love this moment where, you know, the rabbi, I think it's her uncle kind of makes a comment and he says, oh, well, you didn't know she was alive so you weren't living in sin. You know, you weren't in this case of, <laughs> right. you know, doing this on purpose. But the question is, now what? You know, now what do you do when you're balancing these two wives and we, we do spend the rest
0: of the film trying to figure that out? Obviously, they all have redeeming qualities but Tamara, like, she instantly, I was like, Oh, what a, like, what a soul, what a, what a good person, like a really good conscience by the end of the film, you know, one of my favorites. And instantly the two of them are like oil and vinegar. It's like very clear why they didn't stay together. And like Herman just goes right back into it. Like he doesn't take in her beauty and her presence and, and really click with her. He's automatically just like bickering with her and it, and, And I wonder if, is it her or is it the fact that he has two other women to think about and is like pushing this out like logistically just because it's like too complicated. So rather than, you know, have a third wife, I'll just kind of section her off and say that this is not a thing, you know?
1: To, to answer the question that you almost posed
0: there, I think uh,
1: almost more than anything. <laughs> well,
0: you didn't quite ask it, but I'm going to pretend that you Oh, so let me were, ask. what what's, what would be the question you want me to ask so that you can answer? It It was what's the reason that? He's oh, so, so yeah, the question uh, I the question I was asked is like why, like why didn't he kind of try to salvage his relationship with Tamara?
1: Yeah, I, I think yeah. there's there's definitely the the kind of text level response, which is he has two other women to deal with right now. He, he doesn't have Easy the capacity answer. for it. Sure. But I do think a lot of it is about he is a character and we'll see this throughout the movie has really pushed himself out of the past and has kind of moved beyond it. I think we'll right. see this with a lot of other characters and we'll see moments, you know, with Tamara when she's reflecting on the children that they had together that they lost and we see it with Masha where, you know, she, she is clearly racked with it. I mean, we, we skipped over a lot of the lines she has earlier, but she talks about, you know, she refers to herself as dead. Like she, she talks as if she had died during the war and, Mm -hmm. and kind of was never able to move past it. So the way all these characters are so mired in the past, I think the read that I get on Herman is that he is just so far beyond it. He wants to be past it. He's, you know, he's not worried about that. He's kind of living his day to day. And this, start reminder and moment for the past. I I think to reconnect with her would be moving backwards. And he is just, he's propulsive. He wants to move
0: forward. Makes sense. Totally.
1: In that picture that Jeff Bridges won the Oscar
2: for playing a country singer, he's got this, one of his lines is it's funny how fallen can feel like floating for a little while. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's Herman's situation. Like He's floating like 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 a feather on the wind. As long as he can stay aloft, he's going to be OK. But anything that threatens to like make him make a choice or make him yep. like plant his feet um, feels to him like you know being trapped, perhaps mm-hmm. like going backwards to that loft and, and the nightmares that he experiences or just because. You know, characteristically, he's that way. You, know, We get we get intimations from Tamara that he he was kind of uh, unreliable right. you know, before the Holocaust, you know, and the Holocaust just gave him, you know, sort of this this
1: license to be who he always was. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think floating is a way, is a good way of saying it because we see he has these breakdowns and I didn't trace this carefully, but you could almost tie them to moments of, you know, just overwhelmingness of recounting the past, of thinking about the future. But he's almost always trying to coast without worrying about the the repercussions right. and that's why he doesn't see the issue of balancing three wives the way most of the rest of the characters around him kind of increasingly push him to make a decision are you going to marry me are you going to divorce her what are you going to do and it's just he's he's floating I, lo- I love the way you said that yeah i'll get us along a little bit further in the plot there's a lot to cover here we're kind of at the bulk middle of the film a lot of back and forth and now that we've introduced all three of the wives there's really a lot of back and forth so i'm going to roll us through a lot that happens but Buckle uh up. please Exactly. Buckle up and please cut me off if there's anything you want to jump in with or or add. Um, So Herman, in a later scene, he meets Masha out of Delhi and he tells her what the newspaper ad was about. He says that he met Tamara and she doesn't believe him. And when she she, she thinks that he's cheating on her. So he eventually just says, no, it was just a long lost cousin. He lies about it. Later, we have a scene where uh, Herman is back with Yadwiga and they are having Shabbos dinner together. And it's clear that she's begun taking her Jewishness very seriously. I, I mentioned this earlier, but she makes a bracha on candles. That That is very accurate. I mean, this, this table setting, it all looks very familiar to me as far as I can tell. So attention to detail here. Um, meanwhile, Herman is kind of in an opposite trajectory. He's disengaged and he turns a light on in the middle of uh, after Friday night dinner. And when Yadwiga tries to call him out, he says, you know, God isn't real. And if he was, I would defy him because he's he's clearly at this crisis point you know with everything Singer. he just kind of re-entered his life exactly that's where we find him uh, he has an interesting religious journey throughout this film which I'm excited to chronicle uh towards the end but anyway so Herman then leaves again Jadwiga she's growing increasingly suspicious that he's not actually going on his traveling book sales trips and Herman instead makes up a lie and goes on vacation to the Catskills with Masha, which also just Jewish iconography, you know, of the wazoo kind of at, at the Catskills. But what critically happens there is Masha reveals that she's pregnant and she insists that she doesn't want to get an abortion because she thinks it's dangerous and wants to start a family with him. So that night, they fight about this and it leads to Herman going out in the dock where he has probably his most intense flashback sequence of the movie where he's really just kind of Frozen in place with uh, with these memories flooding in of his time of his time hiding, but he eventually returns back and Masha says, you know, they, they after fighting, she asks if he will get married, and he finally agrees that he's going to divorce Sandviga and get married to him. So Herman goes to Tamara and tells him that he's getting married again, and he's completely overwhelmed by all this. So he asks if he could sleep over with you know his old wife, and that night she invites him into bed and they sleep together. And she wakes up in the middle of the night and she is kind of racked with this emotional guilt that or just this emotional devastation she has over their kids dying. And we kind of get to learn a little bit more of his past. And, uh, I I think we should pause there and just
0: check in with where we are with these three relationships that have all gone into new directions. Now that all three are kind of like in, in place here as the different wives, I wanted to kind of, uh, just talk about like how, you know, each of them, you know, We have the past and our present and our future. I feel like very much so that like Tamara is our past, our Holocaust wife who passed away allegedly and now she's back alive. We have Masha who's very much living for the day, whether it's just like having sex right away or like getting married right away or killing ourselves right away or anything. That's like a very present mentality. Whereas like Yadwiga is looking forward. She's having a family. She's trying to convert to Judaism. She wants to be a better wife. She's always you know, making, she's literally thinking about tomorrow by like cooking food and cleaning the house. And so I just think those three things, you know, we're not quite on the stretch train, but join me all aboard. We have the id, the ego, and the super ego, sort of thinking about those three things, as well as all sorts of interesting pairings here uh, of what they represent. But I just wanted to toss that out. And then Harry, you were talking about that sort of flashback scene. The part that was sort of the most visceral for me of of that sort of flashback out on the lake was that he, you know, his he was bashing his head against the pole of the dock, which was just and in some of the other flashback scenes, you just sort of hear these sounds of dogs barking and guards yelling and, but there's ultimately nothing there. You know, initially we do see like someone he mistakes to be a Nazi guard, but a lot of times he just kind of shakes it off. He wipes the sweat off his brow, but this is him literally saying like, get out of my head, just like really tortured by it. And I think it was a great way to show, you know, sort of what he's been through. And then later on, you know, as he's introduced uh, to Tamara, this notion of their past kids and, you know, he does take that photo later on, kind of looks at the kids and he just starts like bawling. So he's going through a lot. And I think as the film progresses, he starts to be more expressive. Um, so that's just something to keep an eye out as you are watching the film.
2: I think we, we've touched on this a little bit. Masha's immediacy yeah, and the carnality. I mean, it's some pretty, pretty raw, sweaty sex yes. for a Paul Mazursky film released by Disney. Oh, yeah. He's a hairy um, guy, boy. Yeah, he's a hairy guy, and I, I think th- I think that helped get him the part.
0: Mm, okay, you know, he, he doesn't
2: yeah. look like some Hollywood, you know, pretty boy, you know, uh, with 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 a glistening body. He's, right. He he kind of looks like you know someone's uncle. Um, <laughs> you know, the guys at the gym that you avert your eyes and you realize you're one of them. But you know, they they have that 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 you know intense heat between them, and I think it's important to note. Also, that there's so many dining scenes mm, in this movie. Mm-hmm. So much of what we think of to do with the Holocaust is about starvation and deprivation. Right. And yet, he's constantly eating. And I, I I remember this from seeing it 30-odd years ago, and it struck me again this time. Something is going on in this movie with fruit compote.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: When he has dinner with Masha and her mother, who's played by Judith Molina, one of the founders of the Living Theater. Uh, Her husband was Julian Beck, who appeared in um, he was a he was a gunman in in the Cotton Club. He he made very few movie appearances, but very important avant garde theatrical uh, performer in the 60s in New York. And she makes compote for them for dessert Mm -hmm. when he meets Masha's husband. Yeah. Uh, who's played by Paul Mazursky?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, he said, You know, they, they meet for coffee and he says, Do you want something? You want, you, you have the cheesecake, you can afford it. Me, I'll have the compote. And at the end, there's a, a new character who is eating apricot compote. Oh, yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Shots of the film. Oh. And something is going on here with this stuff. And I don't know whether it's like, you know, a fetish of Isaac Singers, but there's something about the fruit, the eating of fruit, and the, the preparation of fruit in that fashion that seems, you know, there's there's hors d'oeuvres in this movie. There's several dinner scenes. There's a lot of food. Mazursky told me that it was his thought that that, the people who came out of that experience of the Holocaust and whether they were in a camp or just, you know, like Herman hiding from it, just had these massive appetites for everything. And anything sensual, anything carnal, anything to do with yeah. the body, they just, you know, couldn't get enough of. And and there's a lot of, you know, sort of you know taking off my shirt wearing just you know the tank top sort of sweaty eating going on in this Mm -hmm. movie which may be another reason why hollywood didn't like it so much you know i was like oh there's the old joke that gandhi was uh, everyone in hollywood like voted for gandhi for best picture because he was everything they weren't tan thin and moral
0: (laughs) i like that it's so true i mean there is that sort of notion Holocaust survivors and children of Holocaust survivors have a sort of, uh, interesting relationship to food because of what they experienced in the camps, that there was abundance in the States. And so, you know, always worrying, are you, are you, that's like, I feel like that's probably where the, this trope of like the Jewish mother, are you eating enough? Are you still look like skin and bones, Eat, you know, like that whole thing, I, I feel like is pretty accurately documented in this film. Like you said, there is a lot of food in here. Um, it is, you know. That, that will factor highly into our scores, I hope, at the end, you know? Harry, anything to add here? Yeah, I only wanted to
1: jump in again on that point you made at the beginning, Daniel, when you were talking about the kind of past, future, and present, because I, I actually yeah, think sure. that's a brilliant read of, I, I think that's a great read of these, you know, three women. And I think that, it, it also layers into, and, I, and I'm really pulling everyone together here, what you were saying earlier, Sean, about the kind of floating that Herman is kind of doing between these three women, because it's not clear and not obvious, I guess, what he's kind of looking for, you know, in that, because obviously he's drawn to like the carnal pleasures that we were talking about to, you know, the immediacy of Masha. I mean, that feels like it's a big draw, at least earlier on. And then as his past starts to be introduced, like I think that shifts him between it. And I, I think what's so interesting is that we, you were talking about Yadwiga, you know, she's kind of representing this future, but as she's kind of finding her Jewishness more and more, it's almost pushing him away. Not only is it pull, pushing away from her, it's pushing him, Herman away from his Jewishness, right? That's when he starts to act out. That's where we have that scene with the lamp, because mm. I think if she's going to be the representation of the future, in some ways... A, her pushing towards her Jewishness or or converting towards Jewishness is kind Mm -hmm. of pulling her more towards his past, his Jewish past, because we get the sense that he's not someone who, you know, he's one of those, not one of those, but he is like many people who survived the Holocaust that moved away from Jewishness, like the summary said, you know, how could they believe in a God that would, you know, that would subject them to what they were subjected to. So there's a clear kind of through line there with where, where he's going with this, but as she's kind of getting closer to that. He's getting away, and I think as much as she represents the future, and not to step on the end of the film too much, because ultimately, and I'll I'll give it away, and we'll get to this at the end. But ultimately, he kind of disappears from everyone's life. He abandons all three of them because, as much as she Yadwiga represents the future, the sort of like homely present. I mean, she is so intrinsically linked to his story of survival. Every time he has that flashback, I mean, we see Yadwiga in that first nightmare because she was the one who was, right. you know, it was her family's barn. She was there in the protecting him. Yeah. So if he's ever going to get away from his past, which seems to be his goal, you know, beyond just kind of meandering and floating around, ultimately when things get real, I think there's times where he's willing, where he's willing to embrace it. You know, when we mentioned that scene when um, Tamara is crying over their children, it's not like he's repulsed by it. He he's there with her. He's able oh, yeah. to. He starts place kissing himself her, in her like
0: immediately. He does. Yeah, right. He,
1: I can tell you weren't such a fan of, but I, I think I just took it as like endearing. Like I think sure. he is he's not afraid of the past i don't think he's like abandoned it but ultimately he can't dwell in it too long it's too painful for him it's too difficult which is why to wrap up what i'm saying even though yadwiga as the future which i I totally agree with would seem like the right answer you know ultimately he had to get even further away that's kind of he's he's abandoning all
0: you know reminders and all semblances of his past Well, I I didn't love that reaction just because it's like he's turning on his like default mode of like, hmm, problem, passion. Okay, let me start like kissing her face as opposed to just like maybe stroking her, just giving her a nice hug, a little there, there, something like that. You know, maybe he's just another thing I know we keep adding on, but like what do these women see in him? I don't know. Like. The fact that he's managed to marry three different women, is it just like a supply and demand situation? He's not a catch in my mind, you know. He doesn't, like, what does a ghostwriter for a rabbi make? Let's be real. Like, they're all, like, fighting over him. Like, he's such a catch. He's, like, emotionally unavailable. He's physically unavailable. And, you know. He's broke. He's a liar. He's he's, uh, an
2: intellectual who doesn't do anything in his own name. Yeah. Um, You know, not
0: religious. I mean, we don't
2: know what he did prior to the war. We don't know what life he had in Poland. It was enough of a life to have servants. Mm. Um, Jadwiga was their maid. His marriage to Jadwiga was, you know, out of gratitude, guilt, you know, come with me to America. You know, I can't. You know, she she has that great line. I I gave you the food out of my mouth. I carried your shit. And, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, which you know, in modern psycho speak, is like you know, true on a number of levels. Right. You know, owning yeah. your shit. Um, and then with Masha, it's just like they're they're like you know, the chemistry between them is so crazy that you know, she knows what she's getting, but she also you know, she's so she has the same hunger. In her that he has in him, so right. that's that's it's all they're they're like a couple from an Almodovar film. They're like right. crazy yeah. for each other at a level that defies you know uh, mathematics.
0: You know? Tossing yeah. plates against the wall and then just like making love, yeah. You know, yeah, that kind of thing. And
1: I think one of the other factors in these three relationships, and this is something we're going to touch on when we go through the summary a little bit more because more of this becomes relevant. But the question of of children, and I want to touch on that briefly and just kind of perpetuating you know people's you know people's history people's lines people's you know lives because we like I think all three of the women in their own way have a connection to him that has to do with eventual children I mean in the case of Tamara it's more in the past but she you know clearly has such an emotional spot for the children that they had and and seemingly would want to recreate that and possibly have more children with him. I think you, you see it clearly and we're going to talk about this with Jadviga because there's going to be a moment I'll spoil the next review that you're going to get to in 30 seconds, Daniel, where she announces that she's pregnant and is very excited. And and earlier even she had asked, like, I want to have a child with you. I want to kind of move forward. And then even Masha, who you wouldn't read like that, like she's kind of stuck in the present. She's the one who's not necessarily thinking of that. I think it's tomorrow or someone points out that says like, Oh, well, what, she doesn't want children? Like, trust me, she wants children. And then when she actually asks him, right, we we already mentioned this, the scene where she says that she's pregnant and doesn't want to get the abortion, she she actually, there's a line and we can stitch it in here, but she says, I wanted to have children with you from the moment I met you. Like it's this whole reversal on who we thought hmm. she was. So I think there really is this, not necessarily that they're using him as a means to have children. I think that's reductive to both parties, but in some senses that that is a factor that's keeping everyone together is this question of children. And that's such Just an continuity. important- sure. Jewish continuity, and especially, especially like lively continuity in the wake of the Holocaust. You know, right. there's a scene later that, again, I'm I'm stepping a little ahead, so this will all make sense in a couple minutes. But where you know, Masha's mother said that she really wanted a grandchild, even just to name someone after someone who had perished in the Holocaust, like mm-hmm. there's this question Jews of Jews. Her line after, after yeah. murdered Jews, exactly. Okay. And there's just, I think everyone has this interesting relationship to, you know, perpetuity to children that is clearly defined by, you know, their past. And it's kind of their way of, of moving out of their past and, you know, Jewish continuity. And I, but I, I think that's just big for all three of them. And I'm not sure
0: where Herman kind of fits into that. So let's get that part you just mentioned, Harry. Uh, so in our next, uh, our next section, you know, we talk about, uh, it's, it's Yom Kippur. We hear that Kol nidre that you were talking about, Harry. Um, so Herman and Yadviga have like a fight about going to synagogue for Yom Kippur. Yadviga wants to go. Herman decides that he's just going to stay home. Again, one of these sort of, he has a few, I'm sure some lines about, you know, not believing in God and things like that. So, uh, when she leaves, that was the scene that I mentioned before about, he's like looking in the mirror and sort of starts to break down while looking at the photo of his children later on he meets leon and leon uh this is the uh, fruit compote that you mentioned earlier you know that's when they're getting that fruit compote he meets masha's ex-husband and i think they're trying to finalize a divorce for masha and he says you know i'm planning to marry masha but leon kind of warns him that masha can't be trusted
2: one last thing every female sits in her own net like a spider waiting for a fly if you don't run away
1: They'll suck the last drop
0: of life out of you. Thank you. Uh, Herman is convinced uh, to not marry her, and so he returns home, committed to Yadviga and fully invested in Jewish learning. And I believe it's at this scene, maybe it's, I think, where he's wearing talit inside, and he gets mad at her for Shemini Yat So it's kind of like a, a bit of a, he's the one telling her not to iron. Uh, uh, so Masha calls Herman and asks, you know, sort of like, why are you ignoring me? Because I think at this point, He's on one of his many breaks for Masha. I feel like they break up several times throughout the film. He tells her that Leon says that, you know, she's not to be trusted and she calls Leon the liar. Uh, then they decide to go through with the marriage. So instead of actually getting rid of Masha, she's now back in his life and somehow he manages to slip out of his house and get married to an, another woman. So now he is fully married uh, to all three women. Jadwiga announces to Herman, I think as he's coming back from the, the scene immediately following his marriage, Jadwiga is hollering out the window to, to Herman that she's pregnant.
2: Herman! I'm pregnant! It's wonderful.
0: I feel like that would have been a great, like if this was like a true comedy, you know, you play that curb your enthusiasm sting or something like that, (laughs) you know? So uh, Herman does get a call later on saying that Masha is sick. So he runs out to her house and he's told by the doctor that she in fact was not pregnant. She just had a bad hemorrhage. You know, there's a lot that I just covered, but I wanted to pause here and kind of get your thoughts on all the pregnancies, all the marriages, all the things
2: you know, you you mentioned that 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 there's a very thin line here between comedy and and drama, and yep. you know you can picture this being played on a stage as a farce with people walking in and out of doors and just yeah. missing one another, mm-hmm. and Mazursky handles that with the subway. Um, Herman finds himself at the subway. Masha lives in the Bronx, Yaviga in Brooklyn and, <laughs> right, and Mara right. in Manhattan, and he's looking at signs pointing to all three boroughs, yep. trying to decide which he's supposed to go, where he's expected. And those are comic notes. You know, again, this is this is a guy who who helped create the Monkeys TV show. You know, he was a, he's a very funny man. Paul Mazursky His his uh, memoir. Um, show me the magic is 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 a terrific read. You know, that's not lost on him. what's what's remarkable is is the restraint. just by, you know, changing the the hue a little bit, he he draws real drama out of these things because it is like how could life get any worse? I'm here. I'm pregnant, she shouts to the whole neighborhood. The stakes now are becoming, you know, he's he's sort of like, on top of this Jenga tower that he's
0: built for himself and the pieces are coming out. And there's no way he can sustain it. It is a lot to kind of handle. I think he increasingly gets more stressed. And I, I think you're right on with this sort of like opening and closing of doors and comedy and things like that. There's a scene where we're introduced to this man, Mr. Peshula, who lives in the neighborhood and he's a very rich man. And so he wanted to maybe buy some books from Herman. Uh, and so we have this scene where uh, Tamara is there visiting and we have Yadviga I think in the bathroom because she's run away because there's some sort of argument and Pesola walks in and they, the two of them are talking but meanwhile Yadviga's there and it's a lot of like misdirection trying to figure out he's got to go out to go see Masha because she's just had her miscarriage and Tamara's there and so it's a lot of oh you're a Broder and you're a Broder okay and then by the way I, I didn't get your name uh, Tamara Miss or Mrs
2: whatever you like well, tomorrow what? Surely you have a last name.
1: Tomorrow, Broda. Broda. Also, Broda. Constance.
2: Small world. Extraordinary times. Huh? My regards to your wife.
0: I I fully expected in that last exit when the door slammed that Jadwiga would be standing there, but in fact she wasn't. But I thought just the sort of frenetic, chaotic energy. Just to call back an episode we just did, it felt very like Mark's brothers-esque, where there was just like a lot going on and a lot to keep track of. And so what are the lies that we're telling and who is who's related to who and who's going where? And I think Tamara also had to leave. It was just a lot going on. And I think he did a terrific job sort of mixing the emotional weight of the scenes with some comedic bits to kind of not keep it too, you know, too somber. Yeah.
2: Um when 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 Tamara just visits them in Brooklyn at in Coney Island to see how they're living, Yadviga opens the door, sees Tamara, who right. she does not know is alive, and immediately crosses herself.
1: <laughs> <in reaction laughs> I noticed
2: that. Thinking that she's looking at a ghost. Yeah. And Oops. she screams and you know, it's it's like you know, it's like when someone sees Casper in a cartoon. It's I haven't whole it's just an old-fashioned comedy take, and again, you know, it's it's. I think the, the the material is so heavy, right? And and this guy's predicament is is absurd, but you know, it's also tragic and 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 you know, um, kind of kind of you know loathsome. I mean, that this guy is going through life lying to everybody, mm-hmm. um, except. Finally, he decides he's going to let Tamara be his sort of therapist right. and confidant and manager, um, and you know, and yet because it's Paul Mazursky and he's so adept at at comedy, he can let the comedy bits enter and then you know bring us back to the 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 reality and and the 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 the, the weight of what of the, of the story.
1: I think the ironic thing also with this kind of keeping these three women apart from each other is that it's not exactly that ba- that kind of balancing act of like, how can I coordinate how these people don't know? Because in some ways, I mean, Tamara he's fully open with, he he almost immediately tells her, tells her that there's, you know not just one other woman, but also the affair with Masha. With Masha, he tries to tell her, he says it's Tamara back from the dead. And then she's like, I don't believe you. And she says, okay, I guess it, it's one of my cousins. So it's, it's not like it's, you know, the balancing act is how can I keep this away? I mean, he does keep a lot of it away from Jadwiga who probably should have been told a lot of this a lot sooner up to a point you know up to a point but it's funny because the other two cases we have you know one person is fully okay with everything you know despite also being married to him the other person doesn't believe him so it's like even if he did tell Yadviga, like would she have believed him would that have gone any differently like he's just stuck in this weird conundrum of circumstances that you know ultimately weighs down on him but it's just so ridiculous it's not even like I don't think the right answer was he should have just you know sat everyone down and told them because who would have known.
2: Well, and the the other person he lies to constantly is his employer, right? Rabbi <laughs> Lembeck, and yes. you know, Lembeck just wants to be able to reach him on the phone when he needs work from him, and he refuses to give a phone number. And I love that Lembeck is played by Alan King, the mm. classic Borscht Belt Starker comic in the mm. tuxedo, glad handing, um, you know big shot suburban oil. You can smell Rabbi Lembeck's cologne through the movie screen. Um, you know, he lives on the Upper East Side. He's got a, a a red convertible that he keeps parked in the no parking zone outside his apartment with the rabbi's shield the and the windshield so yeah. he the toad. You know, it's just a wonderfully drawn character. And Alan King has such big, sunny, tanning booth energy. That, you know he he just he just exudes it and, and you see oh here's a model of Jewish moving forward in the new world yes, that doesn't smell exactly. like herring that you know it right. just doesn't have nightmares doesn't even bother to write his own you know uh uh, uh you know speeches sermons. Sermons? yeah, speeches. yeah I so. sermons I guess they are
0: yeah
1: yeah he's a, he he's such a great counterpoint I think to Herman because he really just embodies that like very actively just moving on and he and he insists yeah. he says it a couple of times he's like you know that was in the past this is America and he he really is just like American overindulgence almost like he's, he's just a, he's constantly he's so in past. motion you know he, he's, yeah.
2: he's you, you pick him sweeping in right you know, with with an entourage of people doing things and you know he's it's like a fixer
0: He's, he's, well, as we'll see, he's very, very, very uh, interested in Masha. He's like almost to yes. a point where I was like a little uncomfortable, like, you can go, go through this next part, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll talk about it <laughs> sure. in a second. Sure. Sure. So I'll
1: just, I'll just get us to the end of the film so we can discuss that. But Rabbi Lembeck basically invites Masha and Herman to a party and there they run into Mr. Peshla who you mentioned we had seen earlier, Daniel, who incidentally basically reveals to Masha and everyone there that Herman has two other wives and it kind of all comes out the way it inevitably would at the end of all this, that he's been, you know, he's, he's had three wives this whole time. So Herman later meets Tamara for coffee and she tells him to just go back to the Viga, move on there, you know, settle into that life. She says she'll she'll help him get a job and he should just do that. But um, later on, we hear when once he does that, we kind of learn Masha, she goes to Coney Island and she basically tells Herman, you know, I'm at this hotel. I'm in room five. Come meet me here tonight. And when he goes, she basically tells him that Rabbi Lembeck offered a place for Herman and Masha to stay in California and that they would, you know, everything would be paid. They would kind of get a job and he would let them do that. But ultimately, Herman kind of resists and says he wants to stay with Yadviga. But later on, Herman Herman goes to visit Masha at her apartment and discovers that it's been robbed there. And before they can take in all the despair of of the robbery, uh, Masha's mother is basically brought in by, I think it's a cab driver, brings her in and says, you know, she passed out in the back of the cab and she has to go to the hospital. So Masha goes with her mother to the hospital and we very quickly cut to her returning home And she tells Herman that her mother passed away. So, completely dejected with all of this—that you know, losing her mother, losing her attachment to the past, losing her um her apartment and then learning from Herman that he doesn't want to go on with her you know Masha this character who like we've said has already been talking about how she's dead and is kind of nothing to live for decides that she wants to commit that she wants to die by suicide she has enough sleeping pills with her to overdose and she offers them to Herman and says there's enough for the two of us we can take them here we can just you know end everything and die here and Herman initially agrees to it and he's about to go along with it but then right before he decides to ask you know have you ever lied to me were you sleeping with anyone else know while we were together and she does admit that she slept with her ex-husband leon sort of in exchange for him to um agree to the divorce and their marriage and for some reason and i'm interested to hear your thoughts this completely throws off herman and he's so upset by this that he refuses to um go along with her plan and take the pills so they have they exchange an, an emotional goodbye Masha then takes the pills and dies and we have this cut to her grave plot she's and one of the reasons she mentioned not wanting to go to California was because she wanted to be buried next to her uh, mother and we see their two grave plots kind of placed beside each other so we get a flash forward now and this really wraps up the film we see Yadviga; she's going to the hospital she's pregnant she or she's about to give birth to uh, her child. Tamara's with her, we don't see Herman, and it's revealed in a later scene that they, in the next scene, that they had a child, they named her Masha, they, they call her Masha, 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 you know, obviously after Masha had just passed away, and we see a letter that Yadviga uh, opens from Herman that just has some money to support the kid, but he has abandon everyone and clearly has no intentions of coming back into their lives. And that's how we wrap up the film.
0: It's a very interesting way uh, to kind of wrap the film up. And then we have that Klezmer music, like you said, Harry, with some nice shots exactly. of Coney Island's Wonder Wheel uh, roller coaster. Um, what does this symbolize? I'm not sure, you know, the roller coaster, but or the Ferris wheel, rather, but. It's it's a weird kind of Ferris
2: wheel, the Wonder Wheel, because, you know, a regular Ferris wheel, all the chairs are on the outer rim. right. But in this one, they move back and forth between the rim and the hub. So as you're turning, you're also going in and out, sort of like accordion motion right. as you spin. And and it's so it's a more complicated Ferris wheel.
0: Right, exactly. You know, and, and
2: again, Mazursky was a, a student of, of Fellini. In fact, he has Fellini in a movie of his as, oh. a, as a performer. Wow. A movie called Alex in Wonderland. So, you know, he, he he's aware of Fellini ending with... Klezmer music that sounds like circus music and uh, the the um, uh, Nino Rota scores for eight and a half and La Dolce Vita, very similar textures and Fellini ends movies with like, you know, everything is carnivalesque and, you know, life is right. life is is a parade of, of absurdities. And I think there's there's a, 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 a that flavor is deliberately evoked here.
1: Definitely. I agree. I, I think it kind of forces us to kind of level set and just see how did everyone get where they are? You know, where is Herman? What's going on here? And somehow Tamara and, and Janviga are, are now the the sort of central couple kind of persisting, I think. And, and we mentioned this earlier, just talking about children and survival and in like that scene earlier where Masha's mother talks about, you know, how she wanted to name... Um, she wanted to name the, you know, Masha's child that wasn't to be, obviously, after one of the survival, or one of the people who perished in the Holocaust. And I think it's so powerful that the movie does end on the kind of repeated term Masha. And it's this reveal that, you know, despite Yadviga or Tamar not really having any meaningful relationship with Masha other than, you know, being connected through the same man, but they they clearly didn't have such a strong relationship, deciding to use that name to help her memory live on. And I think a lot of this film, and we're going to talk about this for sure in the themes, but I want to introduce it here, very obviously is about survival and what that means and what that looks like. And everything we've been saying is that dwelling in the past, is that trying to be very focused on kernel pleasures of the future, is that, you know, about, or kernel pleasures of the present, is that about looking forward to the future? And I think the movie leaves that a little bit open-ended, but does definitely focus on how can we Honor the memory of the past while moving forward. And, and one of that is through children and is through naming them. And I think it just it puts Masha in this perspective of as much as she was someone who survived the war and she talks about that. I mean, she says it herself. She calls herself dead. Like she never really made it out. And she is just as much a victim of the Holocaust as anyone who might have died over in Europe. So I think for them to use that name, I think it's it's supposed to call back to the moment with Masha's mother because it's they are choosing to name this child and send off this, you know, person to the future as a reminder and to kind of honor the name of Masha, who is one of, like almost every character in the films, one of the victims of the Holocaust. And I thought that was such a powerful sentiment.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll work backwards because I love the the sort of if sort of, I don't know, maybe I'm just viewing it through 2022 lens, but it's like a very progressive scene where you have like a same sex couple raising a kid together and they're sure. like doing a bang up job of doing it. They're changing diapers together and they're feeding her. She's warming up the bottles and the compote. And like, it's just like, you don't need a man in your life to like be complete. Like you're doing fine, arguably way better without him in your life. So I thought that was like such a nice way to end the film kind of like on a, on a high note. Um, just talking about, you know, sort of like Masha's untimely demise, like her, you know, that whole, we were talking about before, like Harry, it's, it's interesting because there's this like double standard that Herman sets up. He can be unfaithful as much as he wants. And, but like, he gets very irked when he asks Tamara, did you ever sleep with any of the guards? And she lies and she says she did. But like he gets very like fixated on it. Like how many, where, when, and and then when Masha does too, like ultimately this is the thing that bothers you so much. Like it seems like so unfair and kind of like, it seems weird that he holds like this double standard with them. When, when he's the character who's actively married to three women. Yeah. Like Like, who are you to say that these women, you know, they're in a particular situation. They have to act as they act. Like you, you of all people should not be judging them. So I don't know. I found, I found like some fault with that. I didn't, I didn't love that sort of like painting him or I didn't love how he was like painting them with this sort of like, uh, there was some line where it's like, uh, I forget who said it, but there was something about, there was like, maybe it was Leon who said like some women wish they were born a prostitute and die a virgin or something. There was some sort of. Tamara says you must've been sleeping with him when, when we were all, you know, when you were our maid and she says, Oh
2: no, I came to him as a Wiergen. And um, she says,
0: Congratulations. Men love virgins. If every man had his wife, every woman would lie down a prostitute and get up a virgin. Right, right. That's what it is. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I just think... Go ahead.
2: And, And he does pay the price because this very beautiful home life that we see in the very end of the movie of his wife his two, two of his three wives, his first wife and his second wife, I think we can argue that he was never legally or, or morally married to Masha. Sure. Right. They do put together a beautiful home and he has to live, you know, he lies to, to Yadviga saying, I'm a traveling salesman. I need to go to Baltimore. Oh the, yeah. I'm in the jungle in Baltimore. That's yeah. why you heard, you know, he's at the central park zoo or something. Right. There's a, a lion's roar. Um, and uh, he winds up being that guy. Wherever he is, he's earning enough money to send a twenty dollar bill back to New York, and 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 that's you know he's living the lie that he that you know he thought he was escaping with, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's sort of like an exile, you know, beyond exile that that he's forced into um, by by his own choices and his own uh, arbitrary morality. I,
1: I really, I really agree with that. I mean, you said he's paying for it. He, he literally is paying for his choices. <laughs> right, right. He's sending yeah. them money. But also we don't even get, like, he's the protagonist in the film. We don't even get the luxury of getting to see him in those final minutes, right? We have that flash forward. We see Adviga. we see Tamara, we see their child. But like, there's no moment where we cut back to him and he's sitting on a bus or in his new apartment or anything like that. We're just left. We don't know. He, he wanted to write himself out of the story. He didn't, you know, he tried to triple dip with all these different women and kind of never gave any of them you know, the lives or or the the commitment that they wanted. And like you said, he pays the price. He's, we don't even see him. He's out of the film. You just picture him screwing up some women's lives
0: in some other city. Right, right. (laughs) Finding wife number four. Exactly. I I did want to touch, uh, you know, before on this, on this sort of like big party scene, that sort of big reveal. It's another one of those sort of comedic scenes where, you know, you have, uh, you know, two different, partners there, or no, I guess it's just Masha's at the party, but I, yeah, I think this notion of like making sure that one party doesn't find out about all this other stuff. And it's sort of the, the way that the comedy's played out there is, is really nice. I think this also, this notion of like Herman getting cleaned up and going to this like fancy Jewish party where you hear like Yiddish being spoken and you see like a cardinal playing p- uh pool. So it's really like a, um, not like a, what, not a, I guess like a not a non-denomination. What's the, what's the word I'm trying to look for? Like you have Jews and Christians all at all all sorts of people at a party, Sectarian. non-sectarian party. I mean, um, it's like that joke, you know, like a Jew and a rabbi and a whatever walk into a bar. But really, it's like a Jew and a cardinal, or you know. Anyway, <laughs> I just thought it was a very interesting setup and sort of seeing Herman as this sort of like this, uh, you know. Well, we don't know that he's like an un, un, uneducated Jew, but he's like this Lower East Side kind of scrubby Jew coming uptown where there's like a doorman and a very big apartment and things like that, sort of seeing him out of his element. And Rabbi Lembik, as I was saying before, is very interested in Masha, talking about how she's the prettiest girl at the party. And, you know, he's seen dancing with her earlier on. and And it's interesting. I don't know if Herman is reacting to Rabbi Lembick's like advances towards her, but you know, maybe that helps Herman realize like what he has, you know, if, if someone else is like totally envious of, of her as a person. And um, yeah, I don't know. it's just kind of an interesting scene. And, and, uh, and ultimately I feel like it's like our penultimate scene with Masha and Herman together. Right. Because right after that is when they go back to the apartment. And
2: the husband does say, you know, men go crazy for her. Right, it has that effect on men.
0: Ah, yeah, you yeah. Know,
2: it's, a, it's a wonderful performance. I mean, it's Angelica Houston and and uh, um, Margaret Sophie Smith were nominated for Oscars, but Lena. O, I don't know how you choose them and, and don't put Lena Olin in in, in the oh, same wow. class. You know, yeah. she she was terrific, um, and and you know, really, you know. Such complex role, too, because she's very cutting, you know, like I I mentioned an Almodovar movie. I'm thinking of like Matador or Broken Embraces, these passionate, fiery, you know, uh, uh, conversations with the flying plates, you know, and um, she's she's wonderful. But she's also like totally magnetic and, you know, by appearance, the most modern. Right. know. Yadviga uh, is definitely old world European. Tamra is a ghost. You know, she looks like she's dressed from, you know, uh, the '30s. You know, from from before the war. Yep. But Masha feels like you know, it's 19, it, we're coming into the '50s, and this is what you know, a beatnik woman is going to look like. She's going to be the hottest thing in the East Village.
0: You know? Right. Very revealing clothes, kind (laughs) of like accentuating her figure and things like that. And uh, I think you're spot on with that. Yeah.
2: And, you know, Rabbi Lembeck responds to that energy. But Rabbi Lembeck is also present at the birth of the baby. You know, when they come sweeping into the hospital. Right. Right. Rabbi Lembeck has arranged for, you know, I bought the layette. What is he? What is a layette? I bought it. You know, I'm, I'm Rabbi Lembek. I'm not some piker. <laughs> yeah, <I love> him. <laughs> so he he's sort of like the, the 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 godfather, you know, in the small G sense to this baby, and you know, he's taken a, an interest in 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 making the circle whole. You know, even even after all the lies and you know all all the deceits, he still has a place. You know, he's he, he's a good-hearted
1: guy. He could easily be the heavy, in right. another version of this story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's like, even though he's, you know, the most like we called him, like the sort of progressive towards the future that that can still be tied to the past, you know, taking care of this family, making sure and in some ways, making sure that they can afford to move forward. He, he pays for the uh, the funeral and the, and the grave plots for, you know, Masha and her mother, and he pays for this child. So he is, you know, helping close one book open the next, kind of move everyone to the future. Um, With that, I want to take us to break, and we will be right back to rate this film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're discussing Enemies, a love story. And now, as we always do, we're going to go through the film and rate it on a scale of one to five Jewish stars in terms of its content, cast and crew, and
0: themes. So Daniel, why don't you get us started? Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, I think we'll just kind of talk through, uh, cast and crew, you know, pretty Jewish. Ron Silver is Jewish. I don't believe Lena Olin or Margaret Sophie Stein are. Um, but like you said, Alan King, um, Borscht Belt comedian, um, and Paul Mazursky, you know, the director is Jewish. Isaac Basheva singer, uh, the writer of the original book was Jewish. So cast and crew, that's kind of where um, where we're at. And then content and themes, right? So much content, so many themes to discuss. I think, you know, from the pitch-perfect depiction of the Lower East Side, from the synagogue tunes, from the garb, the traditions, some of the more obscure holidays, like mentioning Shemini Yatzeret and things like that. A lot of the Yiddish was spoken and things very very accurate in my book i think uh so the content and and the fact that it's like a jewish story post holocaust i think a lot of i don't want to tease my rating too much but i think there's a lot in there and then themes as we talked about so much just survival uh, you know and jewish continuity and this notion of like post holocaust trauma i think there was so much in there as we kind of chatted through the entire uh, plot you know there's a lot of stuff in there and there's even some like more obscure things that you know were in the book for instance mom's Amasha's mom in the in the book she's called Shifra Pua and those were the Hebrew midwives who like defied Pharaoh's uh, orders in Egypt and saved lots of babies lives so there's like little Easter eggs in there that didn't make it to the actual film but I think you know content is there themes are there But I'm not going to spoil my rating yet. Sean, I'd love to hear how you felt this film stacked up.
2: Yeah, I think even even sort of the below the below the uh, title talent, um, Phil Leeds, the actor who plays Peschelas, who, you know, was best known as a sitcom regular Mm -hmm. old Borscht Belt comic. The Yenta ladies on the corner who are always tisking at, 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 uh, oh, right, right, right. Um, those are our Yiddish theater actresses, uh, Judith Molina, I mentioned who plays, uh, Masha's mother. Um, you know, th- so wherever Mazursky can, he's trying to get the, 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 the texture of that life and, you know, the foods that they eat, the, the, I, th- I think one of the most Jewish things about this story is the way Yadviga crosses herself when she thinks <laughs> she's seeing a ghost. <laughs> because we see, oh, you can't just say, "Poof, I'm Jewish." You right. know, it's a lived thing, and she's not there yet, as much as she wishes to be. But you know, uh, even the, even the idea that someone would—it it was so hard to get a film made. By uh, uh, based on uh, an Isaac Singer's story and and the perseverance to do that, the, the, that Mazursky and, and his you know his production team you know demonstrated. I think I think you know it's because it was important to them that these themes show up. You know we're we again we're we're, we're like eight years or so before Schindler's List, something like this five six years, yep. and you know. It, it still really stands out as an extremely explicit Jewish themed Hollywood film at a time when, OK, we were seeing Jewish characters, but they were basically, you know, uh, assimilated. And these people are not. Right. So, you know, in that sense, it's 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 really steeped in in Polish Jewry and, and Eastern European and specifically late 1940s.
1: Yeah, I, everything that was said before me, I completely agree with, you know, we spoke about the cast and crew that made it and it's not just tangentially people who happen to be Jewish, but the voice of, you know, the book that this was adapted from the director, like it's coming from a Jewish place from some from a clear recollection of, you know, the, this era, this this time and place. And, and speaking of time and place, I mean, everything we're saying about the details, like, We we've said all this already, but it it just it felt so much like there was a real care, real attention to detail was placed to make sure that this didn't feel like like we've mentioned in other movies, this is like we're just gonna put, you know, some random actors in a yarmulke and have them say, you know, have them mispronounce the Shema or something and just maybe call that Jewish. Like there's such it's so clear, you know, how much Jewishness there is here in the content. But the one thing I wanted to really focus on was how thematically Jewish this is, because that's really where it stands out. You know, there are some films we've discussed that do a very good job at kind of placing Jews in the frame and making it about their, you know, having them be these central characters, but maybe putting the plot around something else. And in a lot of ways, this movie obviously does center on the love triangle of it all, but it, it's so deeply rooted in a lot of these Jewish themes. We, we've we done a couple episodes this season, I think, where we've been exploring the idea of the sort of othered character, that, that immigrant character that comes from a different culture. You know, that's generally, you know, that that that's generally been a good way to depict or for us to kind of approach a lot of these characters and films we've seen in a sort of mid 20th century America that many of which had come from Europe and what that otherness means. But what I think this movie does so powerfully is that it really defined for me, especially in context of that, what the Jewish version of that is, right? Not mm-hmm. just the immigrant experience, but specifically the Jewish experience, Jewish immigrant experience, and specifically, you know, those coming in from from Europe after having experienced the Holocaust, where either they had survived or their parents had survived, and every single one of them, you know, if they hadn't lived through it, knew someone who unfortunately had 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 passed away, and and just you know some of the things we've spoken about here that I'm talking about are are like you know the what like we said the sort of the hunger that voraciousness we were saying that was kind of born out of spending years hiding or years in a camp. And, you know, that relationship to children and the persistence of tradition and how that was so important to people who had had lost so many family members and wanted and had so many names that they could use. You know, that that's a Jewish practice and and a practice elsewhere. But to, you know, use the names of people who, you know, had died to uh, to name future generations. And the fact that that is so evidently important and these questions of of marriage and these issues that I said about that I said earlier about you know, these cases of Jewish law of how can you get around that situation in Jewish law where you were married to someone never properly divorced and you just, you don't know for a fact that they died. So what can you do? How can you work around that? Like these, these questions are just so explicitly Jewish, so thematic. And the fact that this movie really centered it around itself around them was really powerful. I, I really, really enjoyed experiencing that and seeing it. And I'll, I'll give everyone a chance to give their numbers before mine, but I have a feeling we all feel pretty similarly about where this ranks in terms of its Jewishness.
0: Yeah. I, I wanted to quickly sneak a question in here for you, Sean, um, as a as a resident film expert, who's been a film critic, being that this film is super Jewish and, and it's, it's part of the conversation now where we have you know, authentically portrayed characters in film, you know, if it's certainly for other, other types of people, you want to have authentically diverse casts and things like that. So in a film like this, or just speaking maybe more generally, how important do you feel like it is to have Jewish actors portray Jewish characters in the film?
2: I don't mind you know, seeing Gentile actors play Jewish characters. I've heard this story told a number of ways, but there is such a thing as acting and the human truth of the character, um, their, their ethnic or religious or cultural experience is only one aspect of it. And really, the plot and the character's arc through the narrative matters more because that's that's the ninety, you know, one hundred and twenty minutes that we're experiencing of them. Really, that's all they are. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is what they are, and the their their ethnic background is sort of like the clothes they're wearing. Right. Um, so I'm 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 not put off by that. Ron Silver happens to be Jewish. The three women playing his wives happen not to be Jewish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of them, her character, her character is not character, right. Russian, but. Um, you know, Angelica Houston won an Oscar playing May Rose Pritzi. She's not Italian. Yep. Um, my, it happens that uh, half my family is Italian American, and I, I'm not offended by that. Ian McKellen told me a story about being invited to breakfast for Brian Singer when Brian Singer was making the movie Apt Pupil mm-hmm. about the Nazi hiding in suburban, you know, small town America. And he had decided when they sat down to breakfast, Brian Singer did in his head that this actor was too young to play the Nazi and didn't say anything about it. And during the course of the breakfast, Brian Singer asked Ian McKellen if he had seen Cold Comfort Farm, which Ian McKellen appears in. And Ian McKellen says, I told him I had. And he asked me, says Ian McKellen, what I thought of the actor who played the preacher, which was Ian McKellen's role Mm. and I started laughing and Ian McKellen's laughing telling me the story he says and I explained to him there is such a thing as acting right well there is such a thing as acting and Angelica Houston fits the part of Tamara she carries the weight of history on her shoulders in a way that I'm thoroughly convinced by Lena Olin is a Swedish woman who worked for with Ingmar Bergman as a young actress but you know, she feels Eastern European, and she carries the the horror of, uh, of Masha's experience so convincingly in her body that it doesn't matter to me who she is off camera. I think that there are um, groups of people who are underrepresented on screen, and when mm-hmm. actors who are not members of that group take the roles that could be played by members of that group. There's, there's a genuine issue there. Mm -hmm. I don't think Jewish actors have wanted for opportunities in Hollywood films playing Gentiles. And, you know, I don't think this film is, is diminished in any way. Sure. By having, having Gentile women playing Jewish roles.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I thought I was just asked the question as a way to like kind of, you know, being that the film came out so long ago, kind of like looking at it again through 2022 lenses, that is something also that we talk about quite a bit on the show and kind of wanted to get your perspective as the experts.
2: Yeah, I don't think it was an issue back then. Um, right. You know, if it was talked about, it was joked about.
0: Right. You know, totally. um, right. I
1: think it, I I just I, I think that was a very thoughtful response. I, I agree with you. I think there are circumstances, you know, in history and with other cultures and with you know race, where certain roles were taken. And I I think that's one issue that, you know, of course when that when that comes up, that that's relevant. And and then I think the only other issue with you know Jewface as it's as it's being referred to is just when that devolves into caricature, which I don't think is anything that happens in this film. You know, I don't think we have you know gentile actresses playing up you know jewish jewish stereotypes to any way so i i don't think that's a really relevant issue here and i i agree there there's so much in the in the movie there's so much in the plot that is just acted i think to a t it was nothing that i noticed and when when we asked I, I didn't look into you know whether they were jewish or not but if you told me either way i, I would have believed it just because of how right. the movie played it out so i, I, I second that you know, um
2: not long after this movie was released, uh, Spike Lee made Mo Better Blues. Mm-hmm. And there was an objection to Mo Better Blues because uh Denzel Washington plays a jazz musician who's being uh, economically exploited by a nightclub owner played by John Turturro, mm-hmm. but John Turturro's character is Jewish, right? And this is around the time that John Turturro played Barton Fink as well.
0: Yeah. And
2: um, you know that's that's an extremely Jewish character, um, and his Judaism is part of the story. But right, right. Uh, the, the, you know there there was outcry that this was anti-Semitic, having John Turturro, a Gentile, play such a, a a character so filled with ugly stereotypes about Jews. So this is decades ago. So it it could happen. I, I don't recall yeah, okay. any such conversation around this film.
1: And I I think the conversation is relevant in a case like that. And and that begs a question. I know there's a, uh, there's a new film uh, maestro with, with Bradley Cooper coming out where he's playing uh, Leonard Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein. Thank you. And I think there were just some early behind the scene, you know, set photos of him kind of putting on a fake nose, right. plastering on like a larger nose. And, and again, uh, that's honestly even still a complicated issue, because in some ways, when you're playing a real person, I think you're trying to look exactly like them and plasters Red, are a probably bigger used. Nose, Right. Right. So I think that one's maybe not as black and white as I'm setting it, but it also is flirting with a lot of harmful stereotypes about, you know, Jewish facial features. And just I think the question is more nuanced than a black and white, you know, sure. a Gentile should or shouldn't
0: portray a Jew on screen. I really think it is case dependent. So I wanted to kind of ask, you know, now that we've talked about a number of things, we've talked about our thoughts on the film, if we could just give us some numbers so we can, uh, everyone can keep track in the Jews on film database of like where we're at with numbers, you know, on a scale of one to five Jewish stars, everyone, how Jewish did you find this film? Enemies, a love story.
2: Uh, This film could not be more Jewish. The only way it could be more Jewish is if it read right to left. I mean, it's just the most Jewish movie you could possibly imagine. And it really is a miracle that Paul Mazursky got this film made in 1989 by Disney, released. I I just remember that he won Best Director from the New York Film Critics, and Lena Olin won Best Supporting Actress from the New York Film Critics. This was a well-received film in its day. The audience wasn't there. Tough sell, but they got a picture made years before schindler's list with his justice as, as as sort of visceral about those times sure and uh really with not much precedence
0: nice harry how about yourself
1: Yeah, I don't think I need to speak too long to say I kind of agree. It it, it almost has to be a five out of five. And we don't give out a lot of fives on this podcast. But like, we've said it across the boards everywhere. You know, I think there was a moment before you asked that question, Daniel, about the Jew face that I was gonna maybe flirt with giving it a 4.8 because of, you know, not Jewish casting across the board. But I don't think that's necessarily relevant in terms of you know, especially with this film, the question of, is this a very Jewish film? Like objectively, yes. Objectively all the way up in every category. So five out of five. Wow. Are you
0: going to complete the trifecta, Daniel? And Where are you going to go with it? I might be the, uh, the, you know, the wild card here. I do feel like, you know, again, I'm looking at it through 2022 lenses and like having like fully, like a, a fully Jewish bench kind of like sells me on the Jewishness of the film. It's like a fully authentic Jewish experience where you have like all the things we talked about. So maybe I might come in where you're at, where you were going to go, Harry, I might just go like four, four, three quarters or 4.8 or something like that. Because I do feel like the performances were great. Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying that like, if they were to like, if it was today, you know, you have movies that are you know, Encantos, Moanas, where you have authentically other types of people cast in those roles um, to kind of complete completely paint the picture of what the film is. And I do feel like that adds a little extra something on top, even if it's just a little bit. So that's why I'm going to hold back from doing uh, a full five Jewish stars, but... Please don't hate me for that, everyone. Um, Sean Levy, thank you so much for being on Jews on Film to discuss Enemies, a Love Story. Really appreciate you taking the time to discuss it. Um, I wanted to see if there's anything you wanted to plug or promote for our listeners at home.
2: Well, I do want to point out I was mistaken earlier. Angelica Houston is of Italian heritage. She was raised in Ireland. Yeah. But her mother mother was an Italian dancer. Got it. Penny dropped in the proper slot the second time. Um, (laughs) You know, I've got a book that came out uh, early in spring of 2022 called In on the Joke, uh, which is uh, portraits of uh, about a dozen women who uh, were the pioneers of stand-up comedy. Um, Women like Moms Mabley, Joan Rivers, uh, Minnie Pearl, um, Elaine May. Uh, the you know who who was considered you know one of the geniuses who created improv comedy mm-hmm. as we know it today um and I've got forthcoming um the episodes should drop sometime in December a narrative a multi-chapter narrative podcast season one the series is called Glitter and might and the first season is about Lou Wasserman the uh the 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 premise of the show is, Hollywood and politics and in the first season we look at the life and um arc of Lou Wasserman who ran MCA and Universal but was also the single single largest private donor to Democratic political candidates for almost 40 years and through selected Jimmy Carter uh, you know helped him win in California as a as a running for the nomination in 1976. Um, at, at his funeral Bill Clinton said if it wasn't for Lou Wasserman I wouldn't have become president. Uh, a remarkable man and and almost completely um sort of lost to the the, the fog of time.
0: These all sound like amazing things to check out. Uh, for those listening now we'll put those in the show notes uh, so you can check those uh, things out. Thanks again for being here.
1: Oh thank you. this was fun. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find us on YouTube, IG, Twitter, under the name Jews on Film. Please rate, follow,
0: like, subscribe, all the above. And uh, thanks for joining us this week. Have a good one. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.